Adam, thank you for reminding us to uh, continue to pray uh, that the Lord would grant us favor in finding a place to uh, continue to meet and worship here in this area. Uh, for those of you who uh, were able to attend our last members meeting, you know that we uh, brought to light the fact that uh, as far as we know, uh, this, uh, this building is going to be sold. Uh, that's as far as we know. We don't know what God knows. Um, of course, we don't want to pray selfishly regarding that. Um, so I would not tell us, tell you to, to, to pray that the building not be sold. There are other people and other families and other factors involved in this that we don't know. We pray for God's will in this. Uh, but uh, as we move ahead in the next uh, months, we will be uh, praying in early January. We'll be calling our church family to a time of prayer and fasting as we give consideration to where we'll meet beyond this. Our heart's desire is to stay here. Uh, we want to please God. We, we certainly want to be in His will. Uh, and uh, our prayer is, is that God's will, if it is God's will, that He would allow us to stay here even with all the news that we've heard. But I just want to encourage you to be aware of that and to continue to pray. Hope you had a great Christmas and a great time uh, with your family. Uh, I do recall our, uh, our service uh, Friday and uh, it, was a, it was a sweet time. We did have uh, individuals here, some of whom uh, have been apart from church for a long time and were here uh, and heard the gospel. Uh, had some folks ask what our Christmas Eve service was like and, and I just tell them it, it's intended uh, like most things that we do, it's intended not to be entertaining. Uh, there are other ways for people to be entertained during the holidays. It was intended to be worshipful. It was intended uh, to communicate the gospel clearly um, for our sake, uh, because it prompted me to give attention even yesterday to my mind being focused on uh, Christ uh, as I spent time with family and friends and uh, were with people but was with people but but the point is is that we intended to communicate the gospel uh, and I hope those of you who were able to be here uh, since that uh, appreciated it uh, and were blessed by it if you have your copies of scripture if you will turn to Hebrews chapter 2 uh, we're going to begin in just a moment. We're going to back up and read, begin, I'll start in verse 10. Uh, you know, we celebrated Christmas yesterday, but we uh, remain uh, in our Advent series. Uh, in fact, as I was thinking about it, we'll conclude our series next week, even though we will have ushered in a whole new year. Next Sunday will be January the 2nd, uh, if God grants us to have next Sunday. But hopefully you've come to understand that to talk about Advent is not just to talk about an event of the past, but it is to give attention to a future event, one that's coming. That is the second Advent. Um, all that we have pointed to in the glory of the first Advent and the glory of the Incarnation is pertinent to that second Advent that we await the return of Christ. And, and they're different. Uh, we know the differences, uh, or at least we, hopefully we know the differences. Uh, we sang about the birth of the Savior uh, over again today. And I don't know if you 
kind of kind of heard it juxtaposed today even in our singing but it was deliberate we sang of the birth of christ and then we looked at uh, the work of christ and the reality of christ in his life and in his death uh, we should not separate those uh, in fact, that is the glory of the Advent. That's what we've been pointing to, uh, is the incarnation and the glory of the Advent and the incarnation as it rests with uh, the plan and the providence of God uh, and what He intended to do in redemption. So uh, they're different. The second Advent will be different. Uh, but what began in eternity past uh, came to fruition in time uh, and points to and prepares and looks toward uh, eternity. Uh, it's incredible to think about. And over the, cap of the last few weeks, we've considered the glory of the Advent. We looked at it as a divine decision that was made in eternity. Uh, we looked at it in a gift that comes in the way of justification uh, and just how uh, wonderful that is, but it is, in, I mean, it's just amazingly complex when we think about what God has done in justification. Uh, and last week we looked at the fact that it transcends time. We said that God transcends time, His love transcends time, the gift that He gives transcends time, and the uh, the continuation of that, or the, or the, it renders something that transcends time, and it points us to eternity, eternal life. Uh, and this morning, we want to kind of use that idea that we had last week. We want to take that diamond and we want to tilt it just a little bit. And I want us to look between a crack, not a crack in the diamond, but I want us to look at a small space that we missed uh, intentionally when turning that diamond between justification and between eternal life. Uh, there, is a, there is a little gap in there that we didn't deal with. We talked about it, we referred to it, but we didn't talk specifically about it as it relates to us. And that is the glory of Advent, divine death-destroying gift. A divine death destroying gift. Well, let's hear about it from the author of Hebrews. We've already read some about it from Timothy. Uh, we heard some about it this morning already from Revelation, and we'll refer back to those. But in verse 10, chapter 2 of Hebrews, for it was fitting that he, meaning Christ, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect, through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I'll tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. I want to pause there, push pause. We're not going to deal with this. But I want you to know that Christ will join us join his brothers and sisters in singing praise. It's incredible to think about. He will join us in singing praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Now we're going to concentrate on verses 14 and 15. Since therefore... 
the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, we're going to make a, make a point here. We won't deal with that. The offspring of Abraham. The point that the author of Hebrews is making here is that he is going to deal with this because of the offspring of Adam. But he is doing this work for the offspring of Abraham. Offspring of Adam equals sin. Offspring of Abraham equals those of faith. Why? Because Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. So that's the, that's the intent in hearing this thing of the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let me ask you a question. What do you fear most? What do you fear most? I suppose our answers may vary. Uh, you may fear not passing your grade this year. I'm not going to ask you if any of you are in jeopardy of not moving on to the next grade. Um, you may fear a wrong decision about choosing a boyfriend or a girlfriend. That may be a fear that you have. It would be a legitimate fear. Um, you may fear losing your job. You may fear having to move. You may fear getting sick. I don't know. There are all kinds of things that we may be afraid of. But if we live long enough, we will deal with, in some way, the fear of death. Uh, Adam brought to our attention, and it caused me, Adam, whenever you mentioned just a moment ago, in, in praying for those who are going through this holiday season in a much different way, because someone that they have been with in the past is not with. And I just immediately, my mind began to scroll of my friends who have gone on uh, and passed away and their families, some of whom I had an opportunity to contact over the course of the last three or four days just to say, hey, I know this year's different for you. I I'm praying for you. And did. And thank you for reminding us of that. But we will. We'll deal with in some way the fear of death. And you know, even a believer can fear death in some way. Uh, I'm reminded of R.C. Sproul uh, who was a believer, by the way. I'm making the point in case you don't know who he is. Uh, he's gone on to be with the Lord. But he once said, I don't fear death. I'm just afraid of dying. What he meant was, he wasn't looking forward to dying. He didn't know what it was going to look like. He didn't know how he was going to suffer. He didn't know how he was going to feel. He didn't know how his death was going to come. 
Uh, most of us, if we could write out how we would like to die, I think that we would like to go to sleep one night and just not wake up. Not even be aware of the fact that we were in the process of dying or that our life was taken from us until we, until we as I say, for a believer, wake up in heaven. That's how we would like to go. Um, I was watching a segment on, um, on rodeos. Uh, and I was listening to testimony of bull riders, and they're just an entirely different breed of people. And it really did put things in perspective. Uh, the interview said, every time I nod my head, meaning when he was on the shoot, and the way they say go is they nod their head, meaning open that gate. Within the next few seconds, my life can be taken from me just like that. For those of you who don't know anything about bull riding, you try to stay on for eight seconds. So in just a matter of the next few seconds, it's life or death every time they nod their head. They think about death. It seems that the author of Hebrews, as we read just a moment ago, believes that all human beings are enslaved their whole life by the fear of death. Seems that way. Look at the text again in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In other words, there is at least in the course of our time, there is this understanding that for the that everyone at some point in time has this fear of death, whether they are entirely conscious of it or not. I did a little research on the fear of death. And here's a portion of what I found, and I'm just going to read it to you. Uh, there is what is called death anxiety. Did you know that? There is death anxiety. Uh, and there are three categories of this anxiety, but the most common is what is called existential death anxiety. It stems from the basic knowledge that human life must end. Uh, most of you who are younger here probably don't, you're not thinking yet about end of life. I'll just give you, I'm 61 and I'm thinking about end of life. In fact, I didn't think I would live to be 61, but now that I am 61, I am really thinking about the end of life. It isn't going to go on. The majority of my life is behind me, my life that as I know it here on this earth. Some of you fall within that category just by virtue of age. Some of you may fall within that category and has nothing to do with age. We just don't know when it's going to come. But there is this death anxiety because life ends. Existential death anxiety is known to be the most powerful form of death anxiety. It's said that language has created the basis for existential death anxiety through uh, commutative and behavioral changes. And other factors include an awareness of the distinction between ourselves and others is that we some will be, some will go and some are left behind. In other words, it creates that void and that division when death comes. A, a full sense of our personal identity in that when that person dies, he is no more. Uh, and we absolutely can't anticipate the future. Um, 
psychiatrist has asserted that humans are prone to death anxiety because our existence is forever shadowed by the knowledge that we will grow, blossom, and inevitably diminish and die. And that's what Scripture says. This is not coming from a believer's standpoint, but it does echo what Scripture has to say. And the researchers went on to say that human beings are the only living things that are truly aware of their own mortality and spend time pondering the meaning of life and death. I still remember what the psalmist had to say in Psalm 90. You can take your copies of Scripture and turn there if you will and we'll read it. But he tells us something about a way that we should pray. Makes sense too when we begin to think about the reality of death. Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. And in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. And listen to this. And they are soon gone. And we fly away. Ever heard someone say that life is short? I'm realizing that life is short. You know why? The psalmist understood it and put it in poetic prose by saying, It is, it is, they are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And here's the prayer. And I want you to make note of this. And this is a worthy prayer. In fact, you can pray it even now as we read it. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Life is short. Teach us to number our days so that we can get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. We sang that just a moment ago. Did you know that? Dear refuge of our weary soul, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Maybe a worthwhile prayer to mark out in your copies of Scripture or transfer it 
And maybe once a week or once a month, pray that prayer. Here's what we know, okay? We know that death is real. That's the first reality we hear from this text. We know that death is real. We read it earlier, but take your copies of your worship guides and turn back over. We had these copies, these these verses of Scripture put here because they are pertinent to what we are trying to, 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 to glean from this text today. In our confession, Adam read them. Let's read them again. Death is a certain reality. We know this. The author of Hebrews has restated it. Why? Notice again in verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. In other words, death was certain for us. Why? Because the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. And then Paul, from that, says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they sinned too, by the way. They ate. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. You remember we looked at that part of the diamond. Now we're looking right down by the side to look at this part of death. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, appointed for you to die once, appointed for me to die once, you may not have an appointment to do anything else in your life. You may not keep any appointments that you may have in your life. You may stand up your betrothed at the altar. You may skip your doctor's appointment and your dentist appointment. You may fail to go to the appointment for a job interview. But there is one appointment that you will not escape. It is appointed unto man once to die. So what do we hear? We hear that death is a real thing. And the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that everyone is under the lifelong slavery of the fear of death. There's a second reality that this text points to. The second reality is that Satan has some power as it relates to death and the fear to which all men are enslaved. Look again there in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death That is the devil. Okay? That is the devil. I think it's appropriate for us to give attention to this. The second reality is that Satan does have some power as it relates to death. We don't know altogether from this text what that power is, but he has power at least related to death and has power regarding the fear of death as it comes to us. 
Now, you may wonder, how can this be? And that's a reasonable question. We may be thinking, well, wait a minute now. I, I thought we've been saying that God is the author and giver of life. That my days are numbered by Him and in Him. That He is sovereign and He holds all authority. And all those things are true. So how then can Satan have control over death and even the fear of death? Well, he has what God has given him. And whatever God has given him in the way of those things, it is according to God's purpose and it's good toward the end of God's plan of redemption. You know why we started out at Advent looking at this being a divine decision made in eternity? I was sharing with a friend of mine just last week when we were talking through that text again. Uh, I said, if we can, if we can begin to, to grab a hold of that and hold on to it with absolute trust and confidence in that, whether we understand it all or not, if we can get a hold of those horns, we can ride that bull. Because if we can get a hold of those horns, of the fact that God has planned this and that creation, as we said, is the arena in which God has planned to work out His plan of redemption, if we can grab a hold of that, then we'll, we're okay with Satan being given certain authority for the good of God and the good of His purpose. And that's what's being said here. So we know that Satan doesn't own the control of death. Why? Because God is the one who gives life and He brings death. The wreckage of His hands is not limited, is, not, is, is limited by God. Turn over to Job chapter 1 and verse 12. Job chapter 1 and verse 12. Which, by the way, um, we will begin... Job uh, in two weeks from today. Three weeks from today, I'm sorry. Three weeks from today. Job chapter 1 and verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, you need to you can back up and read the rest of the context, but this is God speaking to Satan directly to him. Behold, all that he has, referring to Job, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. In other words, I'm giving you the power to execute whatever plan you want to execute against Job, but I am limiting the purview of what you can do. I'm, I'm going to limit this. I'm going to put boundaries around you. And he comes back a little bit later on and God expands those boundaries, but he doesn't go beyond the boundaries. And finally, it comes to the point that the boundary is you can do anything you want to to him, but you can't kill him. But God could have said, and you can kill him. But God is the one who grants that authority. The power of Satan seems to then be tied more to the area of the fear of death. So go back over to our text in Hebrews. I've been chewing on this because you say, some, some people just don't fear death. Well, they're in bondage to the fear of death. And we know that. You know how we know that? 
is people spend an inordinate amount of money in health care to avoid what? Dying. An inordinate amount of money in health care and in doctor bills to avoid dying. They will do it to try to preserve their life for six months or a year. When a doctor says you have six months or a year, they will put their bodies through tremendous trauma to stay alive six more months or a year or in hopes of beating this or that or whatever it is, but do they ever beat death? No. They never beat death. That's what I'm saying. It is appointed unto man once to die. And if it's not this, then it will be that. And if it is not today, it will be tomorrow. Now does that mean that we give no consideration to life? That's not the point. The point is, is there is this Fear that we have of dying and death that for most we will go to the extreme to salvage just one more day. Most will. But Satan doesn't have a control over that, but he does have some control, more control over the fear of death. I heard it said that he is a slave master who tells lies and communicates threats of death to cause people to live in fear, to cause people to adjust their lives, to cause people to turn their backs on God. And we know this is true. You remember from our study of Hebrews, the context? We said that the author of Hebrews writing to a group of believers who are potentially facing death they're certainly going to be persecuted turn over if you will to chapter 10 yeah chapter 10 and verse 32 just to help you get a a frame of reference for that the writer goes on to say but recall the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and afflictions, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your own property. And it goes on to speak about that. And we, though we don't hear about death, we do know that this was a certain reality for them, even in the way of their persecution. His power, Satan's power, is welded most freely, not in being able to take our lives, but in all that he does in speaking lies to us, causing us to doubt God. The reason that we're dealing with our text this morning in the way that we are, and we're hearing this in light of the glory of the advent, is to dispel the fear and dispel the lies that somehow death is something that will control and rule our lives even in our thinking. There are healthy ways to think about death and there are unhealthy ways to think about death. 
But let's talk for just a minute, and I think it would be helpful to us, to find out a little bit about who Satan is and what he does and how that plays into this proposition of him lying and bringing about, casting doubt in our lives in such a way that it would bring about fear. Well, the first thing we know is that Satan does lie. In fact, he doesn't know the truth, so anything that Satan does say is a lie. Jesus said it this way, when he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies, John chapter 8. He blinds the minds of unbelievers. We know that from 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. God has granted him this power, and he does lie, he does blind, and the Bible tells us that he masquerades in costumes in light of unrighteous, and, and unrighteousness. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 11, we hear, Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it's not strange if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In other words, Satan can make himself look to be good, and he can make himself look to look good all along he is seeking to be deceptive. All we have to do is recall back to Genesis uh, chapter 3 and what do we find? In this whole process of his dialogue between Eve and Satan, he sounds really intelligent. He sounds like he has it all figured out. He sounds as if he has the answers. He is causing her to do what? To be enlightened. He is trying to teach her a new and a better way so that she can do what? So that she can get what God has in His way trying to withhold from her so that if, if, if she can now... If she can now do this, she can surpass even the wisdom and knowledge of God and rule God. Masquerades himself as someone and something that he's not. He does signs and wonders. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, it says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Satan tempts people to sin. We know that to be true. He tempted Eve. Who else did he tempt? Well, he tempted Jesus. Tempts to sin. He plucks the Word of God out of people's hearts. For those of us who are, can recall the, the parable of the sower and the seeds, what do we hear? Mark 4.15, Satan immediately comes and takes away the Word which is sown in him. He has the ability to make people sick and place diseases upon them. In Luke chapter 13 and verse 16, uh, ought not this woman, Jesus said, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? He's a murderer. We know that he seeks to kill. John chapter 8 again, you are of your father the devil, Jesus said. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. 
He fights against the plans of mission and the, and the continuation and the propagation of the gospel in the way of missionaries. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, Paul writes, We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. You know why he didn't? He answers that. But Satan hindered us. He accuses And here's where we want to rest for the next few minutes. He accuses Christians before God. He was accusing Job, and we'll look at that in a few weeks. He was accusing Job, but in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10 we hear, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ has come for the accuser, of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. I take that to be real, is that He is constantly accusing us before God. And not only does He accuse us before God, but He accuses us by continually reminding us of our sin and for the believer this is huge because if he can and does continue to remind us of our sin then he is constantly reminding us in an unhealthy way that there is no way he's saying that there is no way that God can forgive you there is no way that God is going to grant you eternal life There is no way that this message of God is true because you are too bad, you are too wicked, you are too sinful, you are beyond God loving. And that's how he accuses. He accuses us and then he accuses us before God. Remember the story of Job? He comes to God and he says, God, the only reason that Job is even remotely righteous in looking to you is because you have blessed him. Anyone would bless you and worship you if you were to do for them what you have done for Job. You have multiplied his family. You have given him riches. You have given him wealth. You have given him health. Anybody, anybody, would respond to you with gratitude and worship you if you did that to them. Take it away, and you'll see another man. Constantly accusing us before God and constantly accusing us. That is the second reality. But there is a third reality in this text. Hear it again. Since therefore... The children, what children? The children that are children of God, that God has adopted, okay? Remember when we were looking back in Ephesians three weeks ago, that we were what? That we were adopted before the foundation of the world, that in Christ we were adopted and made His sons and daughters, He has given us faith to believe in Him, made us His sons and daughters. Well, these children, 
Therefore, since these children all share in flesh and blood, meaning that we are all human, and the reason that the author of Hebrews is reminding us that they share in flesh and blood because he is drawing a distinction between humanity and angelic beings who are not flesh and blood. Okay? And he's saying that Christ has not come for the angels. He's not an angel. He's not come to help angels. He's come to help those who are human, those who are flesh and blood. Since they share in flesh and blood, Christ, He Himself likewise partook of the same things that through death He might destroy the one who has power over Death. I want you to hear that. The glory of Advent is that this is a divine, death-destroying gift. In other words, when we talk about the Advent, the first Advent and the coming of Christ, we are talking about the incredible work of God in the Incarnation. And it was absolutely necessary for Him to come in flesh and blood because those whom God had already ordained to create, remember in Ephesians, He hadn't created them yet. Those that He would create in flesh and blood as His image bearers, in His image. He would in fact then send His Son in flesh and blood to do what? We heard it Friday night when we worshiped. We sang it today. Mary's Son was came to die. Why? So that death would be destroyed for those whom are God's children. I want you to hear that. The Son of God came to destroy death. How was He going to destroy death? Well, it's clear. There's several ways here. Three ways. All three of them come together. One, He destroys death by coming in flesh and blood and living righteous. Okay? Making Him the perfect sacrifice to die in the place of man. To die the physical death in the place of man. And then as we hear in 1 Corinthians 15, to be raised from the dead. To do what? So that death might be destroyed and the one who has the power of death and the fear of death, the placing the fear of death on us might be destroyed. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. What were the works of the devil? Well, the works of the devil was placing upon us a fear and enslaving us to fear of death. We read just a moment ago in our text, Christ took on human nature that through death He might destroy Satan and the power of death. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15. God disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them triumphing 
over them. Turn over there to Colossians, if you will, for just a moment. Verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by counseling. Now here's the, here's the key. By counseling the record of debt that stood against us. You know what he's saying? There is this record of debt, the debt of your sin, that stood against you. The balance sheet was laid out, and you were broke spiritually. You want to put it in banking terms, you were broke spiritually. You didn't have any money to pay it. You had nothing to give to satisfy this debt. And what happens in the way of justification? That debt, your debt is canceled because your debt was paid by Christ. Christ paid your debt, therefore your debt on the record sheet is removed. Notice what he says that stood against us, and then put it in legal terms, with its legal demands. You know what happens if you don't pay your bills? Some of you younger ones, I'll just go ahead and tell you. If you don't pay your bills and you go along long enough, the law can come and get you, and in some cases you can wind up spending time in jail for not paying your bills. There's a legal offense. It's not just a matter of being broke. You'll be broke and in jail. Okay? Well, our debt was a sin debt on the balance sheet. And what that meant for us was death. Eternal death. Physical death. And what do we hear there in Colossians? It was against us with the legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And this is what he did. Notice what he says. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10. We're coming to the end. I want you to hear this. And that one who accuses will be thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone and will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I'll take your worship, guys, if you will. I want you to hear again from Timothy and Revelation. Paul writes to Timothy saying, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Make a note of that. If you don't write in your Bibles, write there in your worship guide, underline that. By his purpose and grace, 
which He gave us in Christ Jesus, when? Before the ages began, okay? And which now has been manifest in real time through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. And wasn't just talking about His birth, but here's what, but who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. John's been given this vision. He's seeing this. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Dear refuge of my weary soul, that's where I go because that's where tears are wiped away. And death shall be no more. The glory of Advent is the glory of God in Christ Jesus in the Incarnation in destroying death. What kind of death? Well, in Christ's coming according to God's plan, He ended spiritual death by making those whom He has ordained for salvation spiritually alive. What kind of death? Though we will experience physical death, His resurrection secured for us life after that with Him. And here's the piece. We look down beside justification and we look down beside eternal life and in there comes that destruction of death that moves us from justification and moves us into eternal life. You see that? Eternal life flowing out of that justification by way of the vehicle of death. Christ's death satisfied our death, was our death. And in that, we are able to have eternal life. That, brothers and sisters and friends, is the glory of the advent. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, it means for us as believers that there is no one left to accuse us. There's no one left to accuse us. We already know that Revelation tells us that the accuser will be cast into the lake of fire and destroyed. So what about between now and then? He can lie all he wants to. 
if we have trusted Christ and we are Abraham's children by virtue of placing our faith and trust in Christ, then we are the children of God and be assured from our text today that the children of God have no need to fear death. And what about for the unbeliever if you're here and you haven't trusted Christ? I will tell you to fear death. I will tell you to fear death. Because it is certain. And as we read from Hebrews 9.27, after death comes judgment. And as certain as death is, just that certain is judgment. And that judgment is the wrath of God upon you and every other person who rejects Christ. Trust Christ. Believe Him. Trust in His atoning work. Be saved. Be saved. Let's pray. Father, You're glorious in all Your ways. You're wonderful in all Your ways and You're good in all Your ways. Thank You, Father, that in Christ we have life and that death is destroyed. And the one who has the power in death who delivers the fear of death primarily because of accusing us as believers of that which has been settled in Christ, thank you that he will be destroyed as well. Thank you for giving us life. Would you grant life to those today, Father, who trust in you according to your word and your will? In Jesus' name we pray.